is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts." And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together to worship on this holy day that you have set apart for this purpose. You call us to worship, you call us to rest, and we come here to do that now in your presence. We pray that you would help us to hear from you as we listen to the preached word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, convict us, change us, strengthen us, and renew us. Do all that you have determined to do here today for your glory and for your namesake alone. Amen. All right. So, last week, uh, we talked about the calling and commission of Jeremiah. We said there that Jeremiah had been raised up by God to warn the people of the impending judgment that was going to come upon them if they did not uh, repent. Well, between chapters 1 and 31 in the book of Jeremiah, Babylon has become the world's superpower. They are taking over the nations of the earth. They've conquered Egypt, they've conquered Assyria, and they've even begun to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jeremiah is a prophet during this time. And Jeremiah tells Judah, he tells the people to whom he is prophesying, that they too must submit to Babylon, or that they will be utterly destroyed. Now, Jeremiah prophesies that the whole people will eventually be taken off into captivity and they will remain there for 70 years. But he says after those 70 years, all of the people will be brought back into the land by God and he will bless them. Uh, We receive from Jeremiah in these chapters here, 31 through 33, a word of hope, a word of consolation in light of the coming judgment. Jeremiah prophesies of a time when God will come and make a new covenant with his people with better promises and better hope than they ever had before. 
And in our passage today, we will see that those promises of the new covenant belong to those of us who are living in the church today. Those promises are ours. God has given them to us. We have received the promised inheritance in its fullness, but we oftentimes don't take advantage of the great blessing that we have as a result, and therefore we live defeated lives. So in our passage today, we're going to see what it means to live under the blessings of the new covenant, which is a great privilege, and how we can better take advantage of such great blessing. So if you'd look back with me, uh, if you would, in verse 31 of chapter 31, we'll start there at the top. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, so he says he's going to make a new covenant here with the entire people of God. If you remember the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel split at this time, has already gone into captivity, and Judah is getting ready to go into captivity as well. And he says that he is making his covenant with the entire people of God. This is to say he makes it with the entire church. As we have said, Israel, which would be uh, the northern kingdom, has already been carried off into captivity, and Judah, the the, kingdom, place in Israel where Jeremiah is prophesying at the time is about to be carried off into captivity. So this new covenant that God is making with them is to the entire nation. It's to the people of God as a whole. Further, it is a new covenant not like the one that was made with the fathers when God brought them out of Egypt. So what covenant is being referred to here? Well, this is the covenant that God makes with Israel on Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, where God gives them laws to live by when they're in the land and tells them how they are to interact with one another and how they are to worship Him. So God says He's making a new covenant with them, one that is different from the one that He had made with them before. Now, why would this be good news for the people? Well, because they kept on breaking that covenant, right? (laughs) They could not keep the covenant. The whole reason that the people are in captivity to their enemies in uh, the foreign lands is because of the fact that they continually disobey the law of God, which is given to them in this covenant. And if God just restored them to the land, there was nothing to assure them that they would remain free because they had the covenant before They were in the land, but they continued to break it. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you with better promises and better hope than they had had before. More revelation of that hope, anyway. Now, I think it would be wise at this point for us to do a brief uh, review of the covenants that we have gone over thus far. And for those of you who are just joining us today, we are in the midst of a series entitled Ancestry.com. Div, that is ancestry.divine, and what we are doing is we are looking at the history of the church, our family history, from the beginning of the pages of Scripture to the end. We're looking at everything that the Bible has to say about who we are, where we came from, where we're going, and what our purpose is in the world. And we have seen that 
the covenant that God made with Abraham included promises that he would bless his people and make them into a multitude of people as numerous as the stars of heaven. And that covenant also included a promise of a land in which they would be able to dwell and live forever. He gives it to them as their inheritance. So there's the Abrahamic covenant that we've looked at. And then when Israel, Abraham's people, are down there in Egypt, God makes them into a nation, and he delivers that people out of Egypt, and as they're on the way to the land that he's giving them, this land that he promised them under Abraham, he gives them laws to live by and how to worship and so forth when they get into the land. We also saw that under David, uh, we've mentioned that God made a a promise that he would one day set a ruler over them uh, to rule in righteousness and to lead them into everlasting victory, a king who would sit on the throne and reign forever and ever. And now God says he's going to make a new covenant with them. Okay? So why the new covenant? When we say it's a new covenant, it doesn't mean that these Other covenants have been set aside. As you've seen in my review, each covenant builds upon the last one. It adds further uh, revelation to it. So he doesn't say that he does away, he doesn't do away with the prior covenant, but he adds to it. Uh, God does not change his mind with uh, with respect to the covenants. It's not as if God looks down and says, oh no, the people are breaking the covenant, now I'm going to have to figure something else out. No, as church history moves forward, God gives greater definition and greater light to those covenants that he has made with his people before. So he uh, he builds upon the last based on the prior commitments that he has already made to them. All right, so let's begin to look at some of those things that are new about the new covenant in verse 33. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the first thing that is new about the new covenant is that God is going to put his law within his people. Uh, Up until this point, God had only revealed or he had only set his law before the people. It was written on stone tablets and it was given to them in other external forms, but it had never been written on their hearts. It had never been internalized like it is going to be here. You see, the problem with the law... uh, was never with the law itself, but it is with the hearts of sinful men. The law is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's the heart of a sinful man that breaks the law of God. Paul tells us that his law, uh, God's law, is holy. <clears throat> a sinful man in and of himself does not have the wherewithal to keep the law because his heart has been corrupted uh, by sin, and so he does not obey the law of God. And up until this point, the law of God just stands there engraved upon stones, not doing anything to help the man keep it, right? When Ezekiel, uh, but when God says that he's going to put his law into a man's heart, 
He is saying that by his spirit, he is going to write that law there so that he naturally begins to obey it. Uh, when Ezekiel describes it, he says, it's as if God takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. You see, we have a hearty stone, uh, a stony heart that is disobedient to the law of God. It will have nothing of it. But when God gives us a heart of flesh, this is saying that he is giving us a heart that beats for him a heart that responds to him, a heart that listens to the word of God when it hears it and obeys it. And this has been the goal of the covenant of all, uh, the goal of the covenant all along. God wants his people to obey his law. But the people continue to break it. Now he says, whenever his people obey his law, he will be their God and they will be his people, which is exactly what Jeremiah says happens when God writes his law on people's hearts. So by enabling his people to keep his law, he enables them to keep his covenant. Now, one more thing that I want to point out here that I think is often missed is the fact that God does not abolish his law under the new covenant. He does not abolish it. He establishes it. This is to say his law does not change in the new covenant. What law does God write upon the hearts of people? Well, it's the very law that he has been revealing to them from the start. He says, I'm going to write my law on your heart, not a new law. So he does not change the law. He just reveals it in a new way. Uh, God's law is based on his nature and his character, which is unchanging and ever lasting. So the law remains the same. The thing that is new is the method by which God establishes his law. So we so respect to this aspect of the covenant, we can say that the one big change, the thing that has been added to God's prior revelation is the fact that men in the new covenant will now have the ability to keep the law by the ministry of God's spirit working within them. So the law remains the, the same. The thing that has changed is men's ability to keep it. Now this is huge because once again, the people remain under the blessing of God by virtue of the fact that they keep God's law. But they have not been able to do this up until this point. Now, one more thing that we need to emphasize about this text is that it is not teaching us that this grace was unheard of prior to the new covenant. In other words, it's not as if men who kept the law in the Old Testament like Moses and Joshua and Caleb and David and all the rest did this of their own initiative. No, they too had the work of God's Spirit uh, working in their hearts. But what this text is telling us is that under the new covenant, this grace will be poured out in a much greater measure so that all of Israel and all of Judah will experience this regeneration. This is to say the people of God on a whole are going to experience this regeneration of their hearts so that they begin to obey God's law. This work was present in Israel under the Old Covenant, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, Old Covenant believers received the work of regeneration in anticipation of the blessings that would come to them in the New Covenant. This is to say they received it in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Every believer that was saved in the Old Covenant is saved by virtue of the fact that he has faith in the promised seed. 
faith in the coming promised seed like Abraham. And therefore, God proactively gave those Old Testament believers the benefits of the new covenant. So the new thing is that the people as a whole receive this regeneration as opposed to individuals or just pockets within the nation. All right. What else is new about the new covenant? Verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, so what is this business about men no longer having to teach their brother and their neighbor to know the Lord anymore? Well, apparently this is something that they used to do in the Old Covenant because they no longer have to do it anymore, right? says this is something that they no longer have to do. But we have no examples of this practice of them saying to one another, know the Lord like this in the Old Testament. So what does this mean? What could it be referring to? Again, all of this is being said with respect to the Old Covenant. This is what is new in contrast to the Old. The Old Covenant's been being superseded by the New. Now, how did men know the Lord under the Mosaic Covenant? Well, through the system of worship that God had set up on Mount Sinai, right? The, through the tabernacle and through the priesthood and through the sacrifices. That is how they knew the Lord. And I think the knowledge of the Lord that is spoken of here when it says, each man says to his neighbor or to his brother, know the Lord is specific, okay? We have to understand that knowledge in relation to everything that has already been said. And we know that God is now writing his law on the hearts of men and empowering them to keep it by his Holy Spirit, and it's the same here. God is confirming in the hearts of men that they know God in a saving way through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So now he's giving them that assurance. Every man knows this within himself. You see, in the Old Covenant, men had to constantly offer up sacrifices for their sins. There were sins of inadvertency where a man uh, didn't realize he had sinned. And then whenever that sin was brought to his attention, he had to go and he had to offer up sacrifice for it. Uh, there were high-handed sins where men willingly and knowingly knew that they had broken God's law and they had to offer up sacrifices for those sins. There was the morning and evening sacrifice that was offered up continually for the people each and every day. There were the sacrifices that were done throughout the year, the Passover and the Day of Atonement. And in all of these things, God testified to his people that their sins were forgiven, but it never ended. It never ended. The, the sacrificial system just went on and on. Week after week and year after year, these animals continued to be sacrificed and offered up. So the people could have no assurance that they were forgiven and saved. But in the, old, but in the new covenant, all of that changes. God assures his people that their sins are forgiven by his spirit now in the new covenant so that they no longer have to constantly teach each other to know the Lord, for they all know him. This is to say that there are no longer mediators. There are no longer priests standing in between God and man. In the new covenant, this truth is going to be immediately confirmed in the hearts of God's people through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. And again, this is not something that didn't happen in the old covenant among individual people in Israel, but in the new covenant it is going to happen on a much broader scale. Uh, but in the, in the New Covenant, all of God's people, the text says, from the greatest of them to the least, from the 
common person all the way up to the king, they will have this saving knowledge in a foolproof way, whereas before they did not. For he says in the latter part of of, of verse 34, I will forgive their sin and remember it no more. Let's read that again. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, what is new about this? Did God not forgive his people's sins in the Old Testament? Well, yes and no. In an anticipatory way, God forgave the sins of his people. Excuse me, as we said in the as we read this morning, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away the sins of men. It only covered them up for a time. Therefore, they could have no assurance that their sin was forgiven once and for all until that final sacrifice was made. When those sacrifices were being made day in and day out, year after year, they were pointing to the need for a final sacrifice, a sacrifice that would take away the people's sins once and for all. And and God is saying in the New Covenant that His people will have that. And once again, those who were forgiven and redeemed under the Old Covenant uh, had the forgiveness of sins, but like I said, in an anticipatory way. So God was forgiving their sins in anticipation of the final sacrifice that would be made. And this is where one of the themes from the beginning of our sermon series comes into uh, play. You said there that God made a promise to Eve in the garden that said her seed would one day crush the head of the serpent. And everybody who is saved from that point on throughout redemptive history is saved based on the fact that they have faith in that promised seed. So Abraham has faith in the promised seed and is justified. Moses has faith in the promised seed and is justified. Caleb, Joshua, David, it's the same thing. Those people were saved in anticipation of the final sacrifice, although it had not been offered. But they were looking beyond those sacrifices to something greater. They were looking underneath the sacrifices for something better. And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that that once-for-all sacrifice was offered up in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, therefore, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, what is different about this forgiveness in the new covenant? There is a greater outpouring of it among God's people, a greater expression of it coming to the fore in the new covenant because everyone experiences this kind of forgiveness in the church today. All of us can look to Jesus Christ. He's not hidden under any sacrifices. He's put on display plainly for all to see, and we can see the final sacrifice for sin offered up, and they can experience, every one of us, the forgiveness of sins once and for all. In Christ, greater revelation has been given to us. Greater fulfillment has come. In the new covenant, the entire church can be assured that their sins have been forgiven once and for all. Okay, friends, so what application can this text have to our lives today? Well, the whole thing applies to us because we are those who are living in the church today under the new covenant. We are the beneficiaries of the blessings of the new covenant. The old covenant church began to experience uh, some of the blessings of the new covenant when they were gathered back into the land, but they did not experience them in their full, because the final sacrifice had not been offered. So up until that point, they were just back in the land, 
and they were not given any real and true lasting victory over their enemies. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he offered up in himself the final sacrifice for sins. And now God's people can have assurance that they are forgiven once and for all. And by the way, with that sacrifice, he secures for us every blessing of the new covenant. He, he secures forgiveness of sins. He secures a new heart. And he secures the Holy Spirit. And if you are a believer living under the new covenant today, you have all of these blessings. They are yours. And because you have these things, you can have true and lasting victory in the Christian life. You can experience the blessings of the covenant that says, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you, curse, uh, if you disobey me, I'll curse you. <clears throat> because this was the problem for God's people all along, right? They could not obey covenant. They could not obey the law. They kept on breaking it. But in the new covenant, God gives you the ability to obey it. See, a lot of Christians think that the new thing about the new covenant is that the old covenant has been obliterated and done away with, and that we're now under grace and not under law. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be under grace and not under law. Jeremiah says right here in the text that in the new covenant, he is going to write his law, God's law, on people's hearts. So to be under grace and not under law means that you have been given the ability by God's Spirit now in the new covenant to keep his law. He has brought the law to life in your heart, as it were, and it now becomes second nature. But people have taken this idea to dangerous extremes. They say things like, well, I'm being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches me everything that is right. Which is true, that the Spirit does not teach you anything that is out of accord with the law of God. But how do we know that the things that the so-called Spirit is saying to you are biblical? Well, we have to look to Holy Scripture, where God has plainly revealed Himself. Now, some people who say that they are being led by the Spirit when they say stuff are saying things that are anti-Christ. So how do we know the difference? Well, again, we have to test the spirits, and we do that by seeing if the things that they say are lining up with Scripture. And this is why it is so important for us to have a revelation from God, an objective standard from outside of ourselves that tells us what is right and what is good and what is holy in the sight of God. Because if you do not, if you reject the law of God, it's just my word against yours, right? It's, it's what I say, it's what you say. How do we know what's right? We have to have something outside of ourselves that we can appeal to, a holy standard that we can point to that says, this is right, and this is good, and this is just. And that's why rejecting the law of God is dangerous. You're left without an authority. You're left without a standard to appeal to. And when we have no standard, what do people begin to do? Well, they begin to make up their own standards, right? Uh, it's inevitable. It's not a question of whether we are going to have law. The question is, whose law are we going to have? Is it God's law or man's law? Governments and societies are necessarily religious. Let me say that again. Governments and societies are necessarily religious. Anytime you begin to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is hateful, what is loving, uh, what is um, uh, 
uh, theft, what is murder. Anytime you begin to determine these things within a a society, you are acting like God. And friends, in our day, morality is being legislated by law. Uh, We're being told what kind of speech is hateful. Uh, We are being told what a real supposed man or woman is. Uh, We are being told uh, what is theft. We are being told what is murder and what is not. We are even being told what a person is. And the only way that we will ever know if any of these things are right and good in the sight of God is if we have a standard outside of ourselves that we can appeal to as a justification for what we say and to measure the things that other people say. Any other way, we are doomed to follow the appetites and ambitions of sinful men. Friends, there is a way that seems right to men, but in the end, the Bible tells us that it leads to death. So we must have a law from above that is holy, just, unchanging, and everlasting based on the very nature and character of God to give us an objective standard in order to order our lives uh, inside and outside of the church. And indeed, when we obey God's law for our lives, we will be blessed and the kingdom will flourish. And if we do not, the church comes under discipline and the nations crumble as a result. Finally, I want to mention something about the fact that in the New Covenant, our sins are forgiven, uh, which is a great blessing. But the problem is, in the New Covenant, we forget that our sins are forgiven and that God remembers them no more. So what do I mean by that? Well, many times believers uh, live defeated lives because they don't believe the very gospel that they preach. Uh, Yes, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, but we do not act like it. For instance, many times we, uh, we will commit sins and we will allow them to control our ability to have good and meaningful relationships with other people who are around us. And instead of repenting of our sins like we should, and moving on, we dwell on them and we allow them to consume us. And what they do is they drive us out of fellowship with other believers into isolation, and we're not able to invest in them with our gifts and the abilities that God has given to us. And it's during times like those that we need to remember that our sins have already been forgiven and blotted out in the blood of Jesus Christ and that God remembers them no more. Other times, we will allow our sins to drive us into further sins. We think, oh, I've already committed this sin. What's one more, right? And we become reckless in our thinking and in our behaviors, and we do things that we wouldn't have normally done if we would have stopped and just repented over that initial sin. We begin saying things to our spouse and to our loved ones and to our friends and to people that we say, Uh, that we see on the street that we normally wouldn't have said if we would have just stopped and apologized, if we would have stopped and remembered that God has forgiven our sin and wiped them all away in Jesus Christ. And if we did that, if we remembered, we would begin to respond to people out of grace and out of forgiveness. We We would treat them differently. We would talk differently to them. We would have a different disposition towards them because we're forgiven people, but we oftentimes forget that we are forgiven. Or sometimes we walk around self-righteously thinking, oh, I have attained a certain level of spirituality today because I haven't sinned against God, I've not done this, that, 
or the other thing, and therefore I'm capable of serving him in this way. I'm ultra-spiritual, right? And when we begin to think this way, we are functionally uh, acting like pagans. We begin to think that God is going to show us favor just because we have been good. And that is not why God shows us favor. God shows us favor based on shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, the once-for-all sacrifice that was offered up for our sins. Our status does not change when we sin. God does not love us any differently uh, whenever we sin. He loves us perfectly and completely apart from anything that we do or ever have done. But what we try to do is we try to find our confidence in other things. We try to find our peace and our security uh, in the fact that we've been good little boys or girls or we've done this, that, or the other thing for God. And we're essentially saying that we are finding our confidence and our peace in the fact that we have done something good and God will have none of it. The only true assurance that we can have in this life that our sins are forgiven and that God remembers them no more is in the blood of Jesus Christ. And when we forget this, we functionally act like unbelievers. So in the final analysis, uh, we have seen that in the New Covenant, we experience the fullness of the blessings that God promised to give to His church from the very beginning. Throughout redemptive history, we have seen that, yes, God has bestowed these blessings on His people who believe <clears throat> and trusted in the promise, but God has unveiled that promise to us in its entirety through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who was offered up once and for all as a sacrifice for our sins in order to redeem all those who trust in Him. He has given us new hearts with the ability to obey Him and the assurance that our sins have been completely forgiven. We've been given the blessings of the new covenant in their entirety. So therefore, let us now walk in obedience to Him so that we might receive His blessing, remembering that we have been set free through His forgiveness to love God and to love other people the way that He has loved us. Let's pray.